This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. Well, welcome. How's everybody doing? All right, today, special Sunday today. Today we are answering questions that many of you have submitted over the last month. And uh, we, we're, we've selected out of the, the cooperative effort of giving me some tough things to talk about. Um, you guys, uh, we've selected 20 of them to answer today. And so uh, we answered different questions in the first. There's some that overlap a little bit. But just to kind of let you know where we are, where we're going, okay, um, Next week, we start our Christmas series. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but we, we have a, a really great love for Christmas. I love Christmas, and, and, and I think every year with Jesus, I, I love it a little more because it, that, that reality that he's present continues to kind of like invade my life. And, and so this week or next week, we start a brand new series called Good News. Right? To celebrate um, what Jesus means to us today. We, we're filled uh, right, with, with bad news. I mean, this world is, is inundated with bad news. But almost every time the birth of Jesus is announced, the, the scriptures tell us that it's good news that he was born. And so for three weeks, we're going to look at why Jesus is still good news. All right. It's going to culminate on the 23rd with an event that we did last year uh, called Vintage Christmas. At Vintage Christmas, it's a, a one-hour uh, acoustic worship, um, small message, and then family communion. Okay, it's at Dennis Vineyard. It's a, it's a great night, December the 23rd at 6 p.m. and at 7.30. It's an hour-long service, so that 30 minutes in between the two we kind of use to, to hang out together. Uh, we'll be having, uh, in the next few weeks, you'll have tickets and uh, all the promotional uh, materials for that. But that's going to be a great evening for us. And then I'm just going to kind of just let the cat out of the bag. There's two weeks in between we, the, that moment, the time that we're done and the time we start a new series in the, the new year. We're going to do two weeks uh, of, of special at the movies. Um, I'm going to bring that back. And so if you're here in the summer, you know how great that is. We have a lot of fun with a series called At the Movies, so we're going to bring that back. Um, so today, we're answering your questions, and I thought we'd get started today by just pointing out some, some thoughts for you on, on questions. All right, the first thing that I want to point out is that questions are a healthy part of discovery. Questions are a healthy part of discovery. If we're going to accept that right now in life, we're not where we need to be, that life is a, life, uh, a lifelong journey, it's designed to be a lifelong journey to pursue Jesus. That means that I'm going to have to move. I'm going to have to grow. I'm going to have to take the next step further. And the only way that I'm going to continue to discover Jesus is by addressing questions, right? That's a healthy part of that process. But I want to give you some kind of guidelines for that. Number two, and I, I say this frequently, if you ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. If you ask the wrong questions in life, you'll get the wrong answers. But probably the best example that I can leverage for you on, on your behalf is when we face tragedy, okay? And we're all going to face tragedy. I don't know who you are, where you are, what you're dealing with. We're all going to face something in life that's tragic. And when we face tragic events, more often than not, we try to ask the question, why? God, why did this happen? Why is often a question that's not going to get answered right away. 
There's a lot of whys that we may never even understand until we're in heaven with Jesus and he can explain it to us personally, right? But God, what are you doing? That's a good question to ask when we're going through difficult moments. God, what are you doing in my life right now? See, if we ask the right questions, we can get the right answers. Number three, if you have all the answers, that only means you're not asking a lot of questions. We all know that guy, right? The guy that's got all the answers. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. There are things in, in, in this whole, whole thing that I still have a lot of questions about. There are things that are, are, are far beyond my capacity to understand and, and, and really even be able to come back and share to you. I still have questions. God is a, a great big God. How could we not have questions for him? Which is why this journey is not a journey of knowledge, is it? It's a journey of faith. And faith implies that there are questions that are yet to be answered. And four, God will often answer our questions, but he will answer them in his way and in his time. I think a lot of the times we ask God questions and we act like we're still waiting for him to answer, right? He's already answered. We just, he just didn't answer the way we wanted him to, right? It's like my daughter who's asked me 8,000 times if she could have a pack of gummies. No, you can't. You need to eat dinner in a few, but Dad can I have some gummies. No, you can't. Did you not hear me? I said the same thing just a moment ago. Dad can I have some gummies. No. Jeez, come on. Come on. I think sometimes we do that with God. But God will answer questions. And today we're going to take some of your questions and look deeply at them. If you've been here for a while, uh, we've done this for the last few years. I want to just kind of explain the difference this year. In the past, I've taken two or three questions and spent a lot of time on those. Today, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to uh, take a lot of questions and spend a little bit of time on them. So some of these questions are really severe, and I wish I could spend more time um, answering them. And, and quite possibly throughout the course of the next year, we will. Um, but... For today's message, it's going to be pretty quick. And they're kind of broken up for us in uh, topics. And so for us today, the first topic that we're going to deal with is Jesus. Because we've got a lot of questions on Jesus. I love that. We should talk about Jesus. Some, we should have questions about Jesus. I think many of us feel, feel bad for having questions about Jesus. And so I'm going to go through some of the most awesome questions that we got. The first question is this. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Yes. Jesus is God. Classically, we would say that Jesus was all at once fully God and fully man. He was the Son of God that was born to a woman. God was his, his Father, and, and he was divine and human all at the same time. That's a tough thing to explain then. But he said this, Jesus said this in John 14, 9. He said this about, about who, who his father was. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. He would go so far as to say, I and the father are one. Jesus was God in flesh. Number two, I know 
God created Jesus, but who created God? <laughs> what a great question, right? What an awesome question. All right, the first thing that I would tell you is that we, we really need to, to do some foundational um, approach kind of to this question, just kind of build a foundation to answer it. God has eternally existed in three different expressions or persons. The same God, one God, who has chosen to reveal himself to us through three distinct different personalities. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They all have different distinctive personalities, different priorities, but they're all the same God choosing to express himself differently to us. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm just going to be honest with you. That doesn't make any rational sense. <laughs> All right? Three persons of God in one God. But that's the truth. It's one God who's chosen to share himself, to reveal himself through three different ways. In the question, I know God created Jesus, but who created God? We need to understand that, first of all, like I said in the first answer, Jesus is fully God. Jesus, the Bible says, is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. So before God ever began to create the world, he knew that we would sin. And the plan was, even before creation started, that Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice. Before it all ever started. He is the lamb slain before the foundations were even poured. We would say that God is eternal and uncreated. Eternal and uncreated. And we find a little glimpse of that in something that I shared with you a few weeks ago concerning Moses. When Moses first encounters God in, in a burning bush, he's quite concerned about who this God is and what he's asking him to do. He, he knows that when he goes back to his people, having left the, the wilderness where he was a, a shepherd, going back to Egypt to lead the people out of Egypt, he knows that they're going to ask him, well, who's the God that sent you? So he asks God, God, what is your name? And God said to Moses in Exodus 3, I am who I am. I am. I am. Means not he was, not he's going to be. He is. I am. He's always been present. Am is the present form of the verb to be. He has always been. He is always going to be. He exists outside of our linear time. He is God. And so Jesus, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one God that we worship, is uncreated and eternal. Number three, how do we know that Jesus resurrected from the dead? What a great question. I love it because I get to preach Jesus' resurrection. All right. Think about this with me. Here's the timeline. Jesus is probably born about 3 B.C., because we got it wrong. We didn't figure out really when he was born. All right, so based on archaeological evidence, he was born about three years before then. All right, so 
That puts his execution around 30 AD. The first gospel that is written is the gospel of Mark. Mark is written, published, and circulated beginning in about 65 AD. That's 35 years. From the time of his execution and resurrection until the first published accounts that we have that are circulating, that we still have manuscripts that declare Jesus raised from the dead. Imagine 35 years ago. It's around 1990, 1989, 1990, when the Berlin Wall fell. If you're old enough to remember that. When the Tiananmen Square uh, protests were happening. Think about that. Would anybody argue that those events didn't happen? Would anybody argue that Ronald Reagan wasn't elected in 1980? They wouldn't. Because the proximity in time is so close. So when the story of Jesus begins to circulate through the gospel of Mark, think about that. Wouldn't there have been some protests? Wouldn't there have been some ability to shoot that down? Probably. I think you find even more evidence in the fact that the people who proclaimed the message of his resurrection, those people gave their lives to proclaim that message. Out of the 12 disciples, all of them would be dead. Judas having killed himself and then been replaced by the Apostle Paul, all of them would be executed except John, who was attempted to be executed. If the message wasn't true, why would they give their lives? I mean, going outside of the textual evidence. There's so much textual evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Historically, it's considered to be one of the most solid historical facts that we have on record. Because there, there are things that we learn in history class that are anchored in just small amounts of writing, historically. Small amounts of archaeology. The, Jesus definitely did resurrect from the dead. There are a few reasons. Number four, are you ever too young for Jesus? Isn't that a good question? Are you ever too young for Jesus? You know what? No. You're not. You're not too young for Jesus. I would, I would probably go so far as to say you might get too old for Jesus. <laughs> you might, that might be something that happens, but are you too young? There's, there's something that we've kind of propagated in the church called the age of accountability, that there's this age where we all of a sudden, there, there's no textual evidence to support that. And what we do know is that based on understanding the way that we reason and understand ideas, it's really up until about the age of 12 or 13 that a child has the ability to understand an abstract God. Okay? Up until that point, everything is very concrete. They understand what they can see, what they can touch, what, what they can kind of put together. But the abstract ideas take a little while to develop. But is God able to change a life very early. I, I, I think you can. As a matter of fact, I've had several friends who 
gave their lives to Jesus very, very early in their lives. So are you ever too old? I, I would point you to this passage of Scripture, Matthew 19, 14. This is Jesus dealing with, with kids. Jesus said, Leave the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Belongs to such as these. Yeah. Are you ever too old for Jesus? No, you're not. Continue on. Topic number two, the Bible. The Bible. Question number one. Is there ever a specific, or is there a specific way to read the Bible? That's a great question. Is there a specific way that we need to be reading the Bible? Many of you look at the Bible like it's a book. You pick it up and you read a book from the cover to the cover. And that's not how the Bible is organized. It's organized into 66 different books that were written over the span of thousands of years from multiple authors for multiple reasons. And they're all kind of grouped together in your Bible to make sense for those of us that study it. But let me just tell you just one secret in studying the Bible that's very important. From the opening line until the last of it, the Bible is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. The Bible comprehensively is about Jesus. So when we study the Bible, we always have to study the Bible, understanding that the Bible is about Jesus. So I would encourage you, if you're brand new into studying the Bible, let's focus on the books that specifically talk about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of the centerpiece of the Bible. As the Bible is broken up into an Old Testament and a New Testament, those are the books that lead into the New Testament. We call them the Gospels. The word gospel means the good news. Those are the stories of Jesus in Scripture. And so if you want to read the Cliff Notes version of that story, it would be the Gospel of Mark is where I would point you to first. Here's some other guides that I would give you when it comes to studying the Bible. First, read a simple Bible. Read a simple Bible. A lot of us that are brand new to coming to church, we still have the old family Bible, right? The old King James Version, which was written hundreds of years ago in ancient English. Even though we can read it and the words still make sense. We don't use words like thy, thou, though, right? We, we're not in that kind of context. And so because we're not, the language itself doesn't make sense to us, all right? Two versions that I would point you to would be the NIV. The NIV is probably the most exhaustive work to uh, translate the Bible itself, the NIV had more scholars working on its translation. And so because the number of voices was bigger, the number of the amount of personality into the interpretation was less. And so it's considered to be widely one of the best English translations of the Bible. That's what we often use for, for our, our words on Sunday. But if you're brand new and to reading the Bible, I would I'd point you to a version that we, we call the Message. The message was translated by Eugene Peterson. It's a paraphrase. It's not a word by word or phrase by phrase. It's really trying to take the biblical language and put it into our language. And the good thing about both of those versions, if you get them, they don't have commentary in there. Don't buy a Bible to read that has commentary because all that happens when we do that is someone else tells us what to think. 
okay? Read a Bible that doesn't have commentary and let the Holy Spirit tell you what to think, all right? So read a simple Bible, study the scriptures slowly, all right? I'm just to be honest with you, you read two or three verses and you feel like God told you something, that's awesome, all right? That's, I mean, that's a wonderful way to kind of process through the Bible. It doesn't have to be chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters. It just needs to be work, right? Just needs to be work, continually compiling that work upon work upon work. So study slowly. And when you reach something that doesn't make sense, when you find a passage of scripture and you don't understand, seek help from commentaries. You can find them for free online. Commentaries are written by men who are scholars who have studied a particular book and they have looked into the history of the book and the language of the book and they understand all the context around it and you'll be able to go to the chapter and verse that you're looking at and in doing so, they'll probably be able to anticipate and answer the questions that you might have. Question number two about the Bible. Why is there an Old Testament and a New Testament? What happens after those? <laughs> Why is there an Old Testament and a New Testament? What happens after those? Well, the word testament literally means covenant. It's an agreement that is 100% agreement on both sides. And the Bible is written to express to us that there was an old covenant that God had made with man. It was called the law. We often celebrate that in the Ten Commandments, right? The do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this kind of system of things. And if you did it all right and you could get it all right, you could be all right with God, right? And it proved to us that we could not be all right with God. The book of Romans tells us that we all have fallen. We're all sinners. We're all failures. We've all broke the law. And so Jesus came to give us a new covenant that is based on grace, that's based on his work, okay? And so the New Testament and the Old Testament. Is the Bible comprehensive? It's comprehensive in expressing that to us. The Bible does not answer every question in the universe. It'd be nice if it did. But again, this isn't a journey based on knowledge. It's a journey based on faith. In the Bible, it's the story of God's redemption of humanity. God's redemption of humanity. And it's complete in its expression of that. We know how it's going to end. God wins. We get to spend an eternity with him in perfection if we love him and have chosen to follow him. Moving on, topic number three, sin and forgiveness. Yay, we get to talk about sin today. How about that? All right, here we go. Sin, question number one, is being mad a sin? Is being mad a sin? How about I just let the Bible answer that one? That'd be good. Ephesians 4.26, look at this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. The Bible actually makes the assumption that you're going to get angry. 
right? We're going to experience emotions. We're going to experience happy, and we're going to experience frustration. We're going to experience anger. But do not let your anger cause you to sin, okay? So being angry is not a sin, but anger can motivate sin, okay? There's some things that we should be angry about. The truth is, is that when we look at what's happening in, in Iraq and Syria right now, there should be a part of us on the inside that gets angry about that. There should be a part of us that, that recognizes how broken and busted what's happening in the world is, and it should provoke us to anger. But in that anger, we should not sin. Question number two, sin and forgiveness. I know God forgives how do we forgive ourselves? How do I forgive myself? I want to tell you something that's very true about God's forgiveness and how we treat ourselves. How we receive God's grace is always deeply connected to how we view ourselves. How we receive God's grace is always deeply connected to how we receive and how we view ourselves. See, if we approach ourselves with the understanding that I I am broken, compelled to get it wrong, I I am really only going to get it right because God has got it right and he's allowed me to to look at me through the lens of Jesus. My my righteousness is not enough, but Jesus' righteousness is. If we look at the world that way, we probably will find it pretty easy to forgive ourselves because we understand that we can't get it right. God is the only one. Jesus is the only one that's got it right. We need his grace. But if we look at ourselves and we think that we can get it right, that we're perfect, that we can, if we try hard enough or we do the right things, we can get this whole thing right. If we think that way about ourselves, it might be hard to forgive yourself because you fundamentally think that you possibly don't need God's grace if you work hard enough, if you're good enough. And that is not true. See, the thing is, is you have to wrestle with some questions about yourself. Can you be perfect? Can you be perfect? I mean, I hate to tell you, but you can't. Only Jesus was perfect. And he was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Next topic. Topic number four, relationships. Relationships. All right. How does God feel about divorce? Y'all going to ask me some tough questions. Y'all going to try to get me in trouble, make me say some stuff I shouldn't. All right. So I'm not even going to answer that question. <laughs> I'm not. No, how about this? Let me, let me just say, let God's word answer how God feels about divorce. This is... Malachi 2.16, God said, I hate divorce. 
says the Lord, the God of Israel. He, he hates it. And here's why God hates divorce. Marriage is one of the most sacred gifts that God gives us. It's not easy. It's far from, from perfect. It's, it's actually a, a quite difficult thing to go through in life. But God's design is that through that difficulty, two broken people will become one. Mutually submitted to each other and to him. See, God, God wants us to experience his grace in the context of marriage. That's why it's not easy. So when the two that he has miraculously helped become one, then separate and become two again, it's not going to be easy. Time after time after time, I've sat with couples in my office who were going through difficult seasons who came to me to say, hey, you know what? We decided to throw in the towel, we're done. And they're all smiles and telling me that, you know? Like it's happy. And I know that for them, there's this kind of sense of finality and, and peace, this thing that I've been struggling with is now going to be over and I'll look at them and every time I will tell them this you feel like this is about to get better it's about to get a lot worse this is going to be hard why does God hate divorce because it rips families apart it hurts kids it's it's tough on us personally and I'm not going to say that every situation you know, that divorce is something that, that is, is horrible. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going there, but I, God's heart is, it, it just hates that for us. So how does God feel about that? I feel like we, we let him answer that one there. Um, question number two. What are the best ways to survive in a loveless marriage? I was really upset that my wife asked this question. Baby, really, you're just going to put it all out there for everybody, aren't you? I love this question. I love how, how honest it is and the perspective that's there. How do you survive in a loveless marriage? That word loveless is quite telling. You know, marriage, I'm going to talk to you about it for a few moments. And hopefully for some of you, you'll gain a little bit of freedom when it comes to your relationship with your spouse. Marriage is not a 50-50 deal. It's not a you meet me halfway deal. Marriage is a 100%, 100% deal. It's all I got, all you got, because that's what it's going to take to make it. If you sit down with couples that have been married for 50, 70 years, men and women who have made it a lifetime together, and you ask them, what did it take? You're going to find them tell you over and over and over again, you know what, sometimes you've got to give a lot and you don't get a lot. Sometimes you just got to gotta be there. You got to be there. You got to be there. You see, the only way that a marriage can get loveless is if, is if you, as one of the participants in it, becomes loveless. So there's always going to be love in your relationship if you're loving. Because it's you 100%, them 100%. And let me just kind of deal with the fact of love and marriage. We 
in, in, in our specific culture, we have a very overly romanticized version of, of marriage. And we, we think that marriage is all about finding somebody that will love us. What, what a really self-centered way to think about marriage. I want to find somebody that's going to love me and make me feel good about myself. Really? That's what this is all about. Can I tell you something? Marriage is, is not comprehensively about you being loved as much as it is about you being committed. Marriage is not holistically about you being loved as much as it is about you being committed. God wants you to experience what commitment feels like. You see, as the Bible describes our relationship with God in Ephesians 5, it talks about wives, submit yourselves to your husband as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. You see, our relationship to each other in a marriage is a lot like our relationship to God. And can I tell you something? There have been seasons in my life when I have not loved God very well. Anybody there with me? There have been seasons in my life where I have ran from my commitment to God. Anybody there with me? And God has chosen to love me, chosen to pursue me, chosen to sustain the relationship by his grace. Understand that. The only thing that will ever sustain a relationship is grace, period. It is not perfection. It is not the performance of your other person. It is grace alone that will sustain you. And marriage is not so much about you being loved and feeling good about yourself as much as it is you being committed to somebody else for a lifetime. And the third question, how do you keep going after a significant loss facing the first holiday without someone that you love? See, there are those questions sitting in this room today. This past year, some of you have lost parents. Some of you have lost grandparents, brothers and sisters. Some of you have even lost children. And as we approach the holidays, we often think about them. And we miss them. Let me give you one thing to to just guide the way that you think. First, focus on what's left, not what's lost. Focus on what's left and not what's lost. And far too often when we hit tragic moments in life, we spend most of the time thinking about the things that we've lost. Well, I really just want a hug from my mom again. I would really just like to sit down and talk to my grandfather again. I, I, I miss the, the, the hand that I used to hold that was my dad's. You see, those, those are things that we've lost. But there are things that are left, like memories, traditions, I'd go so far as to say there's probably a legacy that's there. 
Focus on what's left and not what's lost. And then I'd point you to a passage of scripture out of 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. See, the Bible gives us permission to grieve. It gives us permission to walk through those weighty, difficult moments. But we're supposed to do it with hope. See, Jesus was executed and buried. And as he was buried, it would have been quite easy for the story to have ended right there. The disciples to walk away and go, that was some good teaching. Jesus lived an exemplary life. He died as a sacrifice, all of that stuff. But God didn't let the story in there. You see, for a Jew, three days was final. It was the finalization of an event. And so after three days, when Jesus is completely dead, he walked out of the tomb. Demonstrating for us that no matter how bad the circumstance looks, there is always hope. Our God is bigger than death. Let's pray. So God, today, many of us are facing difficult circumstances. And God, I want to ask you, God, I want to ask you to be a part of this moment right now. God, you've you've been so close to us this entire time. And God, in many ways, we've, in the midst of tragedy, we've been looking to other places. Uh, we've maybe been asking the wrong questions like, why did this happen? And God, I, I pray that right now we would look to you and ask God, what are you doing? God, I know that it's easy for us to find our hope in a thousand other places than you. But that hope will fail us. So God, even as we approach tragic moments, as we deal with difficulty, God, let it be that we do it with hope in you. With every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me ask you this question today. Where's your hope? Where's your hope right now? Where's your hope? Is your hope in a relationship? Is your hope for a lifetime found in the perfection of your spouse? That they'll get it all right and be the perfect husband or the perfect wife? Is your hope found in how much money you have in your bank account today? Or is your hope built on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ himself? Maybe today you would recognize that you have allowed your hope 
to be built on something that is shifting and inconsistent. And maybe today, God, through his mercy, has reminded you that he wants to be your hope. If today you need to make a confession to God, God, I need you to be my hope. I've looked in the wrong places, but I want to hope in you. Would you raise your hand right now if that's you? Anybody else? That's awesome. Anybody else? All over the room. Anybody else? Today, God, I want you to be my hope. I'm tired of looking in the wrong places. So for those of us, God, who have ran from you, who have, God, not looked at you the way we need to, God, let us find our hope in you. And God, by your mercy and grace, come and be our salvation. Come and be Emmanuel, the God that is with us, that walks through life with us, that guides us, that shapes us for your glory, for your renown. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.